0: 7.6 billion now that's a big number that's how many people there are on earth in the u.s alone estimates say that out of 328 million there are nearly 246 million lost souls men women boys and girls that don't know jesus those numbers seem big but what if we were to focus on the number one The Bible tells us that heaven rejoices every time one person comes to know Jesus. What if we were to focus on the daily conversations, those everyday meaningful interactions for Christ that can truly make an eternal difference in someone's life? We can reach our nation with the gospel. We can reach the millions. We can reach our friends and family and neighbors by starting with one. Who's your one? The question we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Who's your one? We're going to kind of unpack that in just a moment a little more deeply, but today we're going to kind of begin to lay the basis, the foundation for being able to ask that question and act upon that question. If you've got your Bibles, uh, take them, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 4. If you've got your digital devices, you can go there. Or if you uh, don't have either of those, or you just want to use a Bible that's provided for you, there's one in front of you in the seat, and you can turn to page 857. That's where we'll be. And so Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Let me ask you a question as we're kind of getting into this, thinking about this. I want to do a little word association. So I want you to think about in your mind what comes to mind, what picture comes to mind, what description comes to mind when you hear the word. Christian. So when you hear the word Christian, I don't say it out loud, but just think about it. What images, what thoughts, what, what words come to mind when you think about the word Christian? Now, to kind of get us into that mode, kind of prime that pump a little bit, let me, you know, when we think of words, when words are said, we immediately in our minds develop images or pictures or thoughts with that. For instance, when I say Trump supporter, you probably get something that kind of in your mind. If I said Bernie supporter, there would be something in your mind that would just kind of be there already. Or vegan or CrossFitter, like you get things in your mind. NASCAR fan, I don't, what comes to mind when you think about NASCAR fan or Star Wars fan or Tennessee volunteer football fan? Well, maybe this is what comes to mind when you think about that. All right. How I felt last night, that's from last night, and so we'll have a grieving session here in a little bit for that. But what comes to mind when you think of Christian? What's the thought that comes to mind? Annie Stanley a pastor in Georgia, says that if you went on the street and you asked 10 people to ask that question, hey, what do you think of when you think of the word Christian, that you might get 10 different responses, If you ask the question, are you a Christian? You may get a multiple choice kind of list of answers. Well, well, what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, what, uh, some people may say, yeah, when I, was, uh, when I was little, I went to church with my family and um, there was a time when I said a prayer and went and talked to the pastor and then went and got, we got, they put me in the water and baptized me and joined the church, so yeah, I'm a Christian. Or, hey, you know what, yeah, my family's always been a Christian family. We grew, I grew up in a Christian family. We have a Bible in our house, so yeah, that's it. Or maybe you'll talk to somebody and they go, well, you're going to have to define what that means before I tell you whether I am or not. Or even somebody could say, well, I'm not, I'm, not the, I'm not a Christian like most people think of Christians. To which you could say, well, what do most people think of Christians? And it's probably not going to be a good answer. What do you think of when the word Christian comes to mind? One guy recently, when asked that question, said, well, Christians are judgmental, homophobic, moralists who think they're the only ones going to heaven and have this little bit of satisfaction that everybody else isn't. That's particularly harsh and maybe earned in some places. The reason I wanted to talk about that word is because what's interesting about the word Christian is that it is not the word that the Bible uses to describe followers of Jesus. It's become the word that we use. It's become the word that you and I, when we talk about, are you a Christian? Have you ever accepted Christ? You're Oh, you're a Christian or you're part of the Christian faith. That's become the word but it's not used much in the Bible. And part of what I think we need to do is to rediscover the word that is used biblically because it helps us to understand what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, the word Christian was first used in Acts eleven twenty six when it tells us that at Antioch the people that were disciples were first called Christians there, and it was by their enemies. It was as a, a term of it was a derogatory term. It was a jest. It was a joke. It was an insult to call him a Christian. The Christian literally meant little Christ. The word Christian is only used three times in the entire Bible. Only three times in the entire Bible do they use that word. And yet the word that was used in that same passage, disciple, is used 281 times in just the New Testament. And I'm not going to say that you need to go out of here and start calling your, I'm not a Christian, I'm a disciple. Like somebody asks, are you a Christian? No, I'm a disciple. Like don't don't be weird like that, all right? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we need to think about what that word is means. Because the word disciple doesn't have some of the baggage that the word Christian does in our current society. And biblically, it has more weight in what it means to follow Christ. Matthew chapter four, verse 18 says this. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea. Now, it gives us this little note, just in case we didn't know. This wasn't recreational fishing. This was their profession, right? They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John, and they were in a boat with Zebedee and their father preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left a the boat, and their father... And they followed him. Now, we're going to take this today and we're going to look at five things that ought to be a part of every believer's understanding of following Jesus that come from this short passage. But I want to confess at the very beginning that when I first read this story, even growing up and even beginning to preach, like this is always one of the stories in the Bible that has fascinated me because it seems strange. I mean, think about it. I mean, I know that we're in church, and so all of our answers are jesus fied You know, we, we have all the right answers for things. But this is kind of a weird thing to happen. This strange guy walks up by the, by the edge of the water. They're out there fishing, and he's like, hey, guys, come on, follow me. And we don't give any idea that they've been introduced to Jesus, that they know Jesus, that they've heard of Jesus. They just throw down their nets, and they get out, and they walk. Now imagine if you had a friend, a relative, a neighbor, who you got a text from this afternoon and that says, hey, off the grid for a couple of years, guy came by office and said, follow me, and I left everything and I'm on my way. What would you think of your friend, your relative? You'd say, get back to your job and ask if you can get it back and get everything right? Right? Now, I don't know if you follow the news this week or not. NFL football starts today, and there's been a particular player in the news for the last month who has given up now $30 million in guaranteed money because he didn't like the helmet, he didn't like the coach, and then he got mad because they actually fined him for not showing up for practice. And do you know what people on social media are saying about him? He's crazy. He's crazy. Like something I mean, there are people that are genuinely concerned about his mental well being. Because who gives up thirty million dollars guaranteed? Have, have any of you given up thirty million this week? If you have, I'd like to have a conversation with you. Is there some I can pick that up, right? Like people leave everything for something that doesn't make sense. You think, What is going on? And so I think there's some explanation we can find in this passage even, and an understanding what it means. And we're going to have to dive deep a little bit into to biblical history here. And so I want you to go with me for just a couple of minutes because we're going to talk about what they understood by Jesus saying, follow me, what was there. you got to start with what a Jewish boy did growing up. All right, I know that sounds strange, but at the age of five, every Jewish boy was taken to Torah school. And in Torah school, they talked about the first five books of the Bible for five years. They didn't have math. They didn't have science. They didn't have reading. They didn't have recess. When they went to school, they talked about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of your favorite devotional books, talked about those for five years. Now, this is, this is kind of cool. What they would do is they would bring them in as a five-year-old. And the first day they were there, they would bring them into this place, into this ceremony where they would begin to read the book of Genesis. Just read it over them. And as they did, they would line the boys up and they would have the boys open their mouths and put out their tongue. And they would come by and put a drop of honey on their tongue. Now here's what's interesting about that, all right? Most of those boys were poor. Most of them came from places they didn't have a lot. I mean, they didn't eat meat a lot because they didn't have meat. They couldn't afford meat. They couldn't find meat. They just basically ate a diet of bread, some rice every now and then, kind of stuff, not even rice, but kind of stuff, some bread, and occasionally, on special occasions, they get some meat. Most people think that almost everybody living in Jesus' time was malnourished none of them had ever tasted anything sweet before. Now, I know when you think of, man, I want a go-to sweet snack, most of you don't think, man, I hope I can get some honey. Like you're thinking, get me some Hershey's or some Reese's or some Kisses or get me something, some ice cream, right? But if you have never tasted anything sweet in your life, and they put a fresh drop of sweet honey on your tongue, as they begin to read the scripture to you for the first time, you are immediately associating that reading, God's word, with the sweetness that's coming into your life. At the end of five years, say five years, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, at the end of five years, they weeded out the ones that weren't going to make it. Most accounts say that they kept somewhere around 25% of the boys at the age of 10. The rest of them were sent back to their families, sent back to the farm, sent back to the fishing, sent back to work. They kept the top of the top. Those guys then took seven years to study the rest of the Old Testament, memorizing large portions of it, figuring out what it means, teaching what it means. At the age of 17, they cut another set and left just the absolute best. And those guys were told, go find someone to train you. And so they would go around to the various teachers, the people that were experts in the law, because every, now this is hard to believe, I know, every young boy in that culture wanted to be, as their profession, a religious expert. There were no basketball players. None of them dreamed about being an Instagram influencer. Nobody wanted their own YouTube channel. Nobody wanted to be a singer or an entertainer. Nobody wanted to be a teacher, a uh, school teacher, because they didn't have that. They all wanted to be experts in the law because it paid the best, and it had the best benefits. Right? Things have changed since that moment, but this was then. That's what they wanted. And so at 17, they would go out, they would find a rabbi, that's what they called him, the teacher, and they would sit at the feet of a rabbi they wanted, and the rabbi would interview them. They call these people Talmid, which we interpret, the word we use for that is disciple. And as they sat at the feet of this rabbi, if the rabbi deemed them worthy after they had already asked the rabbi, they would say Yes. And then they would follow them for 5, 10, 15 years, step by step, learning everything they taught, watching their mannerism, watching how they talked, watching how they answered questions. And at the end of that, if they were good enough in that process, then they themselves could become a rabbi and could have disciples. Now there were some that they had a little extra something. There's a Hebrew word for those rabbis. They were called, they had shmi'ah. And it meant authority. It was very rare. They could teach like nobody else could teach. They could do miracles. So that was the environment that they're brought up in. And when you go back to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is walking by the lake one day. These guys are out on a fishing boat, which tells you what about these guys. Most people think the disciples, when they're first called by the way, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. So what does that tell you about these guys if they're fishing at 14? They got cut at 10. Right? They did not make it. They were not the top of the top. In fact, they were probably... They would have been one of, this is like Jesus choosing the C team. This isn't even B team stuff. This is C team. These are guys back on the boat fishing with their dad while all the good religious boys are over there in school somewhere. The first thing that we see about what it means to follow Jesus from this passage is exactly that that Jesus chooses us not based on our ability, He chooses us based on those that are willing. He didn't choose the best, He chooses the willing. He chose the guys that nobody else would pick when it was dodgeball, choose teams day. Maybe you've been that guy. Maybe you've been that girl. Maybe you've watched them. But he wouldn't have said, I'll take those and those. And they're like, "Woo! glad they took him. We'll take the good ones now. John MacArthur says about this. He says, God skipped all the wise decisions on that day from the earthly perspective. He didn't choose the scholars in Egypt, the librarians in Alexandria, the philosophers in Athens, or the powerful in Rome. He passed over Herodotus and Socrates and Julius Caesar. He chose men so common it was comical. He took no rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a local pastor. Half of these guys were fishermen. One was basically an IRS agent and one was a former terrorist. And that's his crew. He didn't choose based on their ability. It reminds us, this throughout Scripture, God doesn't call the qualified. He doesn't look around and say, who's most qualified to lead? He says, who's out there that will follow me? And I will give you what you need to succeed. Which means, everybody in this room can be used by God in a mighty way. If you're willing to be used by God. When you think about the heroes of the Bible... Man, they were some messed up individuals that God chose, not because they were qualified, but because they were willing. Moses was not a great speaker. In fact, he said, send somebody else to speak for me. And he was a wanted for murder in his hometown. Jonah, as soon as God says something, he runs from God. Yet God used him in my way. Abram lied about his wife twice and committed adultery to speed up the process of God fulfilling his promise. Jacob was a liar, Rahab was a prostitute, David was an adulterer and a murderer, Peter was a hothead, and Paul persecuted the church. And yet God used every one of them in a mighty way. God uses the willing. He'll train us, He'll guide us if we are willing to be used by Him. The second thing we see in this passage, which is powerful and important for us to understand, is that He didn't just choose the the C team and those that were willing. Here's the cool thing. He chose us, not we him. What I mean in this passage is he, they didn't have to come and sit at his feet and ask permission to follow him. They didn't have to go through a process of being asked to follow him. He simply walks by and says, I want you. Throughout the scriptures, throughout the rest of the gospels, there are multiple times that he reminds them, I've chosen you to produce fruit. I've chosen you. You are the ones I chose. You are the ones I wanted. You are the ones that I asked to follow. Now, they willingly follow, but he reminds them, it is me that did the choosing because it gave them confidence to be able to handle whatever it is that was coming their way. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, he reminds you and me, those of us that would call ourselves followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, that he chose us first. Now this isn't a, this isn't a theological debate that he's trying to start. The point he's making is that when it comes to making it through life, because I have chosen you, it is my strength that will carry you through, not yours. When you're facing a difficult moment in your family, it is my strength that will carry you through, not yours. When you are having a difficult time medically, it is my strength that will carry you through not yours. When the workplace is an absolute disaster and you are tired of your job and you don't know how you're going to go another day doing what you're doing, God reminds us it is His strength that will carry us through, not ours. Because He chose us. He wanted us. He desired us. He wants a relationship and to use us. I think about the scene in the New Testament of Peter walking on water. And you know that story if you've been around church at all, right? God um, has sent Jesus and Jesus has got his disciples together and the disciples go out onto the water and they're a far ways off. And then Jesus starts to walk. And you remember the disciples, what did they say? Oh, look, Jesus is walking to us. How exciting. Is that what they said? Do you all remember what they said? It's a ghost! Like, what's going on? And Jesus goes, no, it's me. And Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come. And Jesus says, okay, come. And he reminds Peter, if you do what God calls you to do, you can do things that are unimaginable to the human mind. Peter starts to walk on water and then something distracts him, right? The wind, he gets off cue. He starts to look in a different direction. Something happens. He starts to look away. And what happens to Peter immediately? Sinks. This is what I love about this story, all right? When he sinks... How does he get back up? Is it Peter? Does he figure himself out? Does he steady himself? Does he push down on the water? Does he get up to the top of the water? Oh, I can do that now. Pushes down, stands up on the water, starts walking again. Is that what happens? No, what happens? He sinks and Jesus reaches down and grabs him. And I love about that story and what he's happening to the disciples. He says, listen, it's my responsibility to take care of you because I'm the one that called you when that happens, here's what I want you to understand. You can have confidence in me that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He says, I will take care of you even when it seems the world is falling apart. Even when you begin to sink, I will reach down and pick you up. It is my responsibility. You can imagine, we've already kind of steered this way. We're going to steer this whole sermon message and this whole series towards evangelism, towards sharing your faith, towards finding someone to tell about Jesus. And here's what he wants you to understand. It is not your job to do the saving. It's your job to be faithful. And he's the one that called you. He's the one that is going to equip you. And he's the one that's going to bring the result. But we must be faithful in the midst of that. The third thing that we see in this passage is that when He calls us, the primary call is to be with Him. He doesn't first call them to do something until He calls them to follow Him. Earlier when I was talking about the disciples and what it meant Um, back in those days when a 17-year-old boy would begin to follow a rabbi and what that would happen. One of the interesting things that came out of there is when you were following your rabbi, when you were following your teacher, the best compliment somebody could give you was that the dust of your rabbi is all over you. And the idea is that you are following so closely to the teachings, to the mannerisms, to who he is as a person, to the character of it, that he is literally throwing the dust up on you. Our primary call is to be so close to Jesus that we are covered in his dust. That we know who he is and what he's called us to do. Now for these guys, that literally meant leaving where they were walking with Jesus for three and a half years, discovering where he taught, watching him heal people, participating with him in ministry, seeing him feed the 5,000, watching him as he healed lepers, watching him as he raised the dead to life, listening as he taught like nobody else had taught, listening as he brought authority that nobody else had brought. And in the midst of that, they learned what he was like. They saw what he was like. So at the end, when Jesus goes back to the Father, Peter is ready to step up. He is a different man. He is completely transformed, not only by the Savior power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but because he has seen what Jesus has done all this time and he is walking in his footsteps. The question for us is we can't literally go follow Jesus today in a physical form. What does that look like for us? And the answer is we must be invested in the word of God, because that is the place that God reveals who he is and what he's like and what he does. We must invest our lives in God's word and in fellowship and prayer with Him, and in the people who are encouraging us to follow Him. The fourth thing we see in this passage, that following Christ means leaving it all. In the second story, there are really two stories here. There's the story of Simon and Andrew, and then there's the story of James and John, the sons of thunder. What's interesting, at the end of that second story, verse 22 it says immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him what's interesting about that is that the specifics are mentioned here that are not mentioned in the one before but if they're mentioned here it must mean that there's significance to it and when I think about the significance of leaving the boat and the father it comes down to this they left the two things most important to them their career their livelihood their security, their family, the most significant relationship in their life. They left it behind to follow Jesus. The point is that when you are a disciple, when you are a follower of Jesus, when you are a learner from the rabbi Jesus, when you are following him, it means following him with everything you have and that Jesus is the priority of our lives. Not a priority, not top priority. He is the priority for our lives. Now the truth is, living where we live in the culture in which we live, most of us in this room are not going to be asked to abandon our family To go follow Jesus. When I was growing up and I accepted Jesus as my Savior, my parents did not go, then get out of the house. Like, they celebrated with me. They rejoiced with me. When I told them I was called to preach, Dad was like, I don't know how you're going to make a living, but good, go, right? Like I'm awesome, they were supportive, they love me, they want me to be a part of it. They themselves are followers of Christ. And so most of us in this room are not going to deal with that aspect of it. But we will deal with the priorities of our lives trying to encroach upon our following Jesus. And so that may mean, as a college student, people get called to go do a summer missions away. And you're thinking, yeah, but what about an internship? Or how am I going to make money for the next semester of school? Or how am I going to do that? And parents may say, well, you just can't afford to go. But yet you know there's a calling on your life to go. What do you do in that situation? Maybe it's not a full summer. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a mom or a dad that says, man, I really feel I need to go to Brazil or I need to go to Lynch this weekend. We have a large group in Lynch, Kentucky this weekend, or I need to go to Denver, but I don't know how I would work all that out and childcare out and go in there. And I don't know that I need to be out of the country. How am I going to afford it? And all of that. And so you begin to think of all of the excuses and other things and priorities in your life instead of what God's called you to do. Maybe it's not that grand. Maybe it's a high school student with a set of friends that are beginning to make choices that are obviously not what God would intend. And you have to make the decision whether or not you're going to do what they are doing, you're going to go with them, or you're going to do what God's called you to do. Maybe it's a church member. Someone shares with you a particularly juicy piece of gossip and you're like, how am I going to handle that? Am I going to add it to my prayer list for everybody to know about? Am I going to end it? Am I going to stop it? Or am I going to continue it? And maybe even in giving. I saw a report this week, and it's just fact, that Christians in America are giving less percentage now than they have ever given to their church. And that comes down to an issue of priority. Is this what God's called us to do? Is this what we're supposed to be obedient? Or is this something that I want to hold back? The point here for these guys is Jesus comes along. This guy that has the authority, this rabbi, is giving them an offer that they did not get because they got cut at 10 from being a part of this discipleship group. He is giving them an opportunity, but he says, this can't be something where you say, hey, I'm going to wait a little bit. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The man that puts his hand to the plow but looks back is not fit for the kingdom. You're in or you're out. Which leads to the last thing He tells them in the first set. Follow me, He told them, and I will make you fish for people. He commands us to spiritually reproduce. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means that we understand, first and foremost, that He chose us not because there's anything good about us. He chose us if we're willing. That He chose us. It's not something that we got to pursue on our own to begin with. That our primary call is to be with Him and that it may be abandoning lots of things. In fact, if anything comes in conflict with our relationship with the Lord, then we have to evaluate it on the scale that the Lord's relationship is first. And then the last thing is, we need to be spiritually reproducing. What do you mean by that, Lyle? What I mean by that is, I mean, That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are telling other people about Him. You are sharing your faith on a regular basis. You're inviting people to be part of church experiences or to at least go to some church where they can hear about the gospel. You are sharing the gospel with friends. You're providing avenues for the gospel to spread around the world. You are part of spiritually reproducing. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, We have determined as an American church that this particular part of being a disciple is for the spiritually elite, the Navy SEAL team of the Christian faith. And yet scripture makes it abundantly clear. If you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot opt out of this one. Now, a lot of people think they can. How do we know that? Statistics tell us that the average Christian has not shared their faith with anybody in the last, when I say average Christian, 80 to 85 percent of people identify themselves as Christians have not shared their faith with anybody in the last two years. And if we're called to follow Jesus, if we are a disciple, we will reproduce. Remember, we are supposed to have the dust of the rabbi all over us. And when you look at the scriptures, the dust of the rabbi will definitely have sharing our faith with others. John fifteen eight says that my father is glorified by this. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. This is right before he is going to be crucified. He says, my father is glorified by this. By what? That you produce much fruit. And that doesn't mean, if some people say, awesome, oh, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yes, that's in some ways here, but what is meant here specifically is that you will be fishers of men, that you will be fishers of women, that you will go after people, that you will tell people about the gospel, that you will develop more disciples. He says that you produce much fruit is how you prove to be my disciples. John nineteen ten. the dust of the rabbi ought to be all over us. The idea there is, he says, that I have come to seek and to save the lost. What's amazing about that, when we hear that God has then passed that on to us in Matthew 28, that we are the method by which God will carry the gospel to the nations, I can't help but think of the reality that if we don't do our job, then we are letting down what the Lord has called us to do. God's plan is not bigger church services. God's plan is not bigger uh, events. God's plan is you and me sharing our faith, One-on-one with people that are in our circles of influence. Now listen, I know this is a touchy subject. You know, one of the ways I know that? This is just, by the way, we started a new um, Wednesday night discipleship class last Wednesday night. Um, I've taught many of those at this church. I've been here 12 years. I don't know how many I've taught, but I've taught a lot. Last week was my lowest first week attendance we've ever had. Guess what we're talking about? Sharing our faith. Maybe that's coincidental. Maybe. But the evidence seemed to suggest it's something a lot of people don't want to talk about. Now part of that's because we feel guilty. I understand that. We're going to talk over the next few weeks about some practical ways to work that in. But here's what I want you to understand. If you look at American Christianity right now, if you look at this movement of God in America, what we have seen over the last 20 years is that the number of people who are identifying themselves as Christians is not growing while the nation grows. In fact, in every major denomination, every major church group, the number of people converting, being baptized, whatever you want to call it, is falling. In our own denomination, for the last 10 years, the number of people being baptized into our churches has fallen every year. We are at a low that has not been seen since the 1940s. Now, we can ask all kinds of questions. What does that mean? Is that because of church services? Is that because of people's schedules? Is that because of the nature of what life is? Is that because of the secularization of our culture? And all of those may give some explanation. But can I tell you what the simplest explanation is? That the men and women who call themselves Christians are not doing what disciples of Christ are supposed to be doing. And that is sharing their faith personally with people in their circle of influence. And that's you and that's me. And so over the next few weeks, this is what I'm going to ask you. That's what this title of this message series is, is Who's Your One? And that's what I want you to think about. For this week in particular, I just want you to think through, pray through, ask God to reveal to you the one now I mean by that, somebody in your circle of influence, somebody that works with you, goes to school with you, somebody that's in your family, somebody that you know, maybe it's somebody that you interact with on a pretty regular basis. I mean, even somebody like the person that serves you coffee, when the new Starbucks opens in the next few days, you can build a relationship with your barista, all right? I mean, whatever that is, right? Ask God, who's my one? And I just want you to, this week alone, that's the only prayer. I want you to be focused this week on who is your one. And every week from that, we're going to talk about some different prayer focus. But I want you to pray every day, God, give me my one. God, help me to know who my one is. And by that, I mean the one person in your life, in your circle of influence, that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. And if you say to me, I don't have anybody, then you need to expand your circle. We need to start—I don't know—working out at the gym, or going to the same coffee shop every day, or going to a neighbor's house that you've never met before and start to build a relationship. It's hard to be salt and light in the world when you're not interacting with anybody. And so over the next week, that's what I really want you to pray: Who is my one? And we're not just going to talk—and we're not going to talk about hey, invite them all to church on the same day. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about. The person in your life that needs Jesus. And I don't want to end this message today without asking a really a second question. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's a question for you. It's simply this are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? See, that's a more pointed question than are you a Christian, right? Are you doing what Christ has called you to do? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted the gospel in your life? Well, what is the gospel? The gospel simply says that you and I have messed up our lives, and it's not hard to see that happen. That you are not someone that has done everything 100% right, and that against God you have sinned. Sin's a big word, but it just means that we have not done what God's called us to do, or that we have done something God's explicitly said not to do. The gospel says that there's nothing you and I can do about that. We are the ones that have offended. We can't make it up. We don't have enough to make it up. But God, who looked down through history and saw that was the case, prepared and sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life, never sinned never did anything wrong, died on the cross for your sins and mine as a perfect sacrifice and rose again from the grave three days later. And he offers to you the opportunity to accept forgiveness of your guilt And to save you from your sin if you will but accept who He is and what He's done. And if you've never done that before, if you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, or maybe you think, well, man, at one time in my life I said I was a Christian, but I don't know if I believe that stuff anymore or I'm asking questions about that. Man, I'd love to talk to you. We're going to have just a moment. We're going to sing and we're going to have a time of response. I'd love to have a conversation with you. But before you leave here today, I want you to think through that question. Are you a disciple Jesus. Let's pray to God.